from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Measured Thoughts on Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School. Here's your host, David Reepstein. She sneaks around the world from Vienna to Carolina. She's a sticky finger filter from Berlin down to Belize. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Measure Thoughts with Dave Reepstein on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Dave Reepstein, and I'm joining you here on Sirius XM Channel 111, which I do every Monday at 4 p.m., and we are replayed throughout the week. And wonderful music, Tatiana, to get us started. I do appreciate that. And it goes with our guest today that we're going to have, who is Howard Blumenthal, who's the, a visiting scholar at the Annenberg School for Communications here at the University of Pennsylvania. But before I start talking with him, I just want to tell everybody I just came back from um, from spending the end of last week in Chicago at the Marketing Science uh, Trustees Meeting, Marketing Science Institute Trustees Meeting, and where I had been a uh, an executive director for a couple of years and really enjoyed that experience. Heard some fabulous presentations there. One of them was one that was given by Sunil Gupta, who is a professor at the Harvard Business School. And he talked about businesses reinventing themselves and reinventing their business model. And he's got a book that's going to be coming out on that. And I can't wait to get him on the show to talk about that. It'll be great. He talked about a car dealer in Japan that got rid of their dealership floor. And they basically had one car on their showroom floor, and it's the number one a car dealership in, in all of Tokyo, and basically they take cars to you for you to you to test drive rather than you come to the dealership. And this one dealership is outdoing everybody else and all the other dealerships that they've got. Fascinating story. He he you know, obviously talked about Airbnb looking and and uh, saying we don't need to own hotels to be in the hotel business. He talked about something that I had worked on with Shell almost uh, 10 years ago, which was, wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to go to a gas station anymore? That gas came to you like all other utilities, and you you ended up just coming out and finding your car already full because they'd go around to parking lots and fill it up. And I think it's a great idea, and actually I had worked with a couple students on that for a while as well. There was another presentation that was given by a guy by the name of Doug Sharp, who is at a company I had never heard of called Oath. And apparently Oath is um, a really big-time company, and it's now part of Verizon. And uh, and he talked about the privacy of, of data. So they have all this access to consumer data, and he noted that you know when you he show, he showed his um Amazon page when he logs on to Amazon and he showed his wife's Amazon page and totally different based on what it is that they've searched and how that was so much more convenient for him and so much con- more convenient for his wife and so it's an interesting issue I'm going to want to talk about at some point on this on this program maybe even today with Howard so we'll see about that but I do want to rush us into today's program because I'm very excited about our guests as well as the second part of the program. So we've got two parts to the program we're going to do today. First part is my guest, Howard Blumenthal, who has a very long and impressive resume. And if I would go through the whole thing, we wouldn't have any time for us to have a discussion. So I'm just going to tell you that he's a visiting scholar at the Annenberg School for Communications here at the University of Pennsylvania. And... Do feel free to call in with any questions that you might have about him. But when we are done with him, and that's only partially done with him, but when when we finish that segment of the program, I'm going to encourage you to call in with any questions that you have about marketing, about branding, um, and about metrics. So you can give us a call at, at any time on any of those things. Let me remind you, you're listening to Measure Thoughts with Dave Reepstein on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. You can call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at BizRadio111. So let's get started. Howard Blumenthal, welcome. Glad to have you here. Good to be here. We started the program with that music. That's not my normal lead-in into this program. What was that music? Well, it was our normal lead-in for a PBS series that was very popular with kids in the early 1990s. And we felt the best way to build the brand was with a theme song. 
and it worked. A theme song for what? For a PBS series that uh, addressed the issue that kids in one survey did not know what country was to the south of us. So PBS decided the way to solve that problem was by doing a game show based upon a software license called Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego that involved questions and answers and adventures around the world. And so, so began the... What was your role with Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Well, there were two different aspects to it. The first was in Silicon Valley, where I had some friends who had this company, Bruderbund Software, and they were sufficiently geeky to figure maps were kind of fun, and maybe they ought to build a computer game around it. That became, well, maybe we could take that and move it over to television. So everybody fantasized uh, three years before the show went on the air. And then they're friends. You have conversations. You forget about them. Three years later, I'm sitting in a restaurant. I get a phone call. Um, would I like to create and produce a series based upon the software? And I'm thinking, wow, those early conversations actually resulted in something. What fun. Um, so we created a, uh, a very crazy show that involved games and musical comedy and uh, interactive elements and a lot of audience participation and running around on a 40, a, a 35-foot-wide map of variously, depending on the episode, North America, Europe, Asia, etc. And it was a very challenging show, um, particularly the end game where the run that the kid had to do uh, somewhere on the Internet, it, somebody figured they'd have to be an Olympic athlete to actually win the game. And in fact, every year, 14 kids won that game every season, which is exactly based upon my measurement and calculation of how long a step would be how fast a kid could run, what the height would be, what the footstep distance would be, and how difficult it was to identify Ethiopia versus Uganda if you're looking at a map upside down with 100 people cheering at you. <laughs> Wait a minute. Did they actually physically have to run? Yes, they physically ran. Okay. They, and it's way too bizarre. It's, yeah. it's way too bizarre. Yeah, and it's all on the Internet. You'll but, find it. But, so it's more fun to watch it than to hear about it. Right. Yeah. So that sounds like really fun. So kids did not know what country was just south of uh, the United States? Well, it was a survey, but it ended up being a survey that uh, a lot of that got a lot of attention. So when Jennifer Lawson, who was then the first head of programming at PBS, was asked what might she do with this new job that had never existed before in programming PBS, she said, well, we might even do a game show. The newspapers picked up and said, PBS announces plans for a game show. Now they needed a game show. And that's that information about what was in the survey combined with the availability of the Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego license plus some very clever people at WGBH and WQED. All of that resulted in a path that led to let's build a television show. So this was born off of people not knowing what country was uh, just immediately south of the United States. Wouldn't it have been easier just to elect Trump? Yeah, and, right. and then everybody would know what country is directly below the United States. And what, could... what was so interesting about it is I, I wondered, well, how much do we know about places around the world? So I would ask people to make a list of all the countries that they'd heard of. And I spent a lot of time in schools because this was a show for, ultimately for school children. So I would hand out index, index cards and I'd say, tell me everything you know about France. Tell me everything you know about England. And I would hand it out to everybody, including the teachers. And the number of times that I would ask the Britain question but get the Eiffel Tower as <laughs> one of the answers, it happened regularly. We don't, we don't typically educate about that. Is World it? maps are relatively scarce in classrooms. Teaching people about other countries is not a high priority, which is one of the reasons that the Carmen Sandiego project worked so well then and one of the reasons that I'm now working on another project now to help people understand, particularly children, how the world works. So I'm a little bit confused. The Eiffel Tower is not in the UK? <laughs> well, <laughs> okay, okay. So, so um, well, that's really interesting. And actually, that's how you and I connected, because I'd been doing all this survey work, as my audience knows, uh, about people's perceptions about countries around the world. And here you created a television program to try and help educate kids about that. Did you do a survey after the program was over, after all the game shows were over and everything, to see whether or not you had an impact on people's perception about ge uh, world geography? Let's say less survey, more anecdotal, but quite a bit of anecdotal, in which I would meet a, an international studies student who would say, I did this because of your television show. We heard that over and over and over again. 
we knew this show was a hit because I made the mistake of wearing a tour jacket. Remember in the 1990s, we had leather sleeve tour jackets, and it had a show logo on the back. And I was on NJ Transit, a commuter train between New York and Philadelphia, and everybody on the train sang the theme song to me. It was one of the most embarrassing moments, certainly my most embarrassing commuting moment ever. But uh, I knew at that point that we really had something that was special. Is it that uh, that that jacket I find online right there? It's pretty that, similar. It's, it's pretty not similar exactly that one, but it's pretty similar. Well, you know, yeah. if if you would wear that jacket around here, I think people would still start singing or something around right. you. I'm sure. I'm sure that would be the case. So, um, you there's a, a variety of things that I've discovered about you that I think are interesting for us to talk about. So one of them is, as you said, you did this game show on PBS. Was this the first game show on PBS, or had there been others? So for those who are of a certain age may remember uh, an NBC show called Concentration. My dad produced that show at NBC. So I grew up at NBC. So game shows were sort of in the blood. It was something I knew how to do. But I helped get Double Dare going on Nickelodeon um, when MTV wanted to break its half hour. It's a short form format and put a half hour on. A game show was the answer. It was called Remote Control. For those who are comedy fans, Colin Quinn sort of launched his career there. Um, so I've had some experience with game shows over the years. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot more to life than game shows. And I've certainly discovered that people will allow me to do things way beyond what I originally thought I'd be doing as a career. Wow. So, and, and, well, television has changed a lot as well. Yeah. So, you know, when your dad was doing concentration, there were three networks. Um, PBS now exists as one of hundreds of channels. Hundreds of channels. It's amazing. So I was lucky early on because the company I worked for, which is now Time Warner, but was then Warner Communications, part of my job was to invent new television channels. My father thought I, we, they were out of their minds. How do you invent NBC? Uh, it's like, no, it's going to be different, Dad. It's going to be channels for this new cable television thing, and they'll be much more specialized. So a channel for kids a channel for teenagers, Nickelodeon, MTV, a channel for people who like sports, a channel for weather, a channel that maybe is run by Disney. And he would look at me cross-eyed, like, how is this possible? Well, of course, what he didn't see were the, pl the technology plans that I was seeing that would allow an astonishing 30 channels on cable television at Whoa, that time. Right? 30 channels. Yeah. But actually, I think it has had a dramatic impact on so many different aspects of our life. Uh, first of all, the business definition of it is that if I'm an advertiser, I want to reach a really narrow audience because I'm selling wedding dresses. And so I want to go to the wedding channel if there is such a thing. Um, actually, do you have any ideas since you mentioned the weather channel? Who is it that advertises on the weather channel? I don't actually. So what would be logical for that? Just think about that for a minute. Maybe those who do outdoor wear or boots or that, that would be the Those, user, those right? would be logical. Sure. What is very common is when you're getting ready to go on a trip, you check the weather. Mm -hmm. I want to know, you know, I'm going to Jamaica later this week. I want to know what the weather is in Jamaica. So airlines are advertising on that. Hotels are advertising on it. Rental cars. And actually, you've got a whole bunch of people that are going to be taking flights that are going to be... You know, staying in hotels, they're going to be renting cars. And it's like, this is the perfect audience rather than if I advertise on concentration, maybe, maybe 5 to 10% of those people are going to be traveling anytime soon. But if you're selling ivory soap and you've got a 70% female housewife audience, remember, that's what it was like in the 1960s, concentration, daytime television, that would be the ideal place. But when you bring up specificity. So think about the granularity that's happened. So here's a ESPN, wow, a whole channel for sports. And then very quickly, advertisers begin to realize that a basketball fan behaves very differently at different times of the season in different markets. So it becomes more and more specific. And the measurement that goes with what cable could have become ends up happening much more on the internet than it does on cable television. So, you know, when it's initially, wow, a whole channel devoted to music, and then you realize how many different genres there are for music. So when I was packaging television shows, we pitched the idea of doing a Miles Davis uh, special. And this, it's not really what we do. Far too outside the circle of mainstream legacy rock. Huh. So you come, so it's like, well, what actually is in that big bucket? 
and what ends up being too granular, too specialized, and what ends up being the right thing to do for Internet but not really the right thing to do for cable. So we become more and more specific, but along the way, we've fragmented the audiences to a point where it's very difficult to cum up an audience that's large enough to be meaningful. Cum up, that's an interesting term, and I, I think what it is, you just went on with that definition of making sure that it's big enough that it is a, a significant, you know, for the effort, basically, that I'm reaching. So I want to reach a certain number of relevant people. And so you have to do several of these if it becomes too granular. And I think that's really important. Let me r remind our audience that you're listening to Measure Thoughts with Dave Reepstein on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And we're currently talking to Howard Blumenthal, who's a visiting scholar here at the Annenberg School for Communications at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, What's interesting to me is thinking about this narrow casting versus broadcasting. And typically that is sold on a cost per thousand you know, basis. But what you really want is cost per relevant thousand. That is, I'm trying to reach those people within a certain demographic group with a certain propensity to buy particular products. And if I could reach a large enough number of those that have a high interest in this, then it's much more worthwhile than spending money on a broader audience. So the cost per thousand actually goes up, but the waste goes down. So I would argue, and I'd be curious at your perspective on it, that it's become more efficient for advertisers even though the cost per thousand has gone up. Do you have a reaction to that? It depends on so many other factors, right? So my lesson, uh, my introduction to that was at a company called CD Now that a very small number of people may remember, uh, remember even it. though we spent about $150 million marketing it. So, so tell people who CD Now yeah. was. So we're based here in Philadelphia. CD Now was a Philadelphia company uh, founded by two brothers who were interested in finding Miles Davis's kind of blue uh, on a CD, couldn't in a regular record store, and decided to build a large database-driven record store so that people could find what they wanted, selection being the, you know, the, the primary value proposition. The interesting thing about CD Now, which becomes a very large website with about 500 people working there, is you're not selling CDs, you're satisfying the needs of specific music listeners. So the initial, before I got there, and I, I was one of the executives there, but early on they were simply selling CDs. Then it became clear as I started looking at what those numbers looked like that teenagers were buying discounted CDs that they could buy just a little bit cheaper than they could at Walmart. But they tended to buy one CD. That was their market basket. It wasn't profitable. Guys in their 40s, typically the, the legend in the record industry is you buy your age. So if you're 41 years old, you buy 41 CDs a year. That's the way it worked. So what you want to do is get those people at the right age to be buying as many CDs at once from you as possible because they would buy the entire Grateful Dead live catalog, <laughs> for example, and they'd pay full price for it. You don't have to discount it. So are you selling CDs or are you identifying very specific target audiences and then filling their need for product that they can't find elsewhere? And as we shifted the company from broad and general to highly targeted, it became a much more interesting play, not only for the retail side of the operation, but also for the non-retail advertising side of the business. Because we could work with Hard Rock Cafe on certain projects. We could work with House of Blues on other kinds of projects. It's the same notion of you, you start giving people a, a well-defined audience. And that's part of what it is that you were doing. And studying the audience. So this is re very relevant to, to this program and to, uh, and to what you specialize in. Understanding the business by analyzing the numbers and understanding how the behaviors work. All that becomes tremendously important in planning, a, particularly a new media business, because the environment is so crowded. It's so competitive. The only way you can break through is to really understand what that audience is and where, where the gap is and how best to serve it using what kind of media product, what kind of retail product, what kinds of products and services, international, local, broad, narrow. Um, but the numbers now are available. You know, in, in the Stone Age when my dad was doing concentration, they pointed three cameras and hoped for the best. 
Right. Um, now we can look at a dizzying amount of statistics. But when we do, the question is, are we looking at them the right way? Are we burying ourselves in analysis? And where does instinct fit in all that? Because instinct, at the end of the day, is the basis for the decision. It has to be. It can't just be the numbers. It has to be a balance. Yeah, and so you and I might arm wrestle over that because I, I think there's so much in the data that tells the story. So. You know, what I, I, right before I introduced you, I was talking about Doug Sharp at Oath, and he talked about how his Amazon page was, you know, he would go and it would show books that he'd been looking at before, and it showed, you know, audio equipment because he was an audiophile, whereas his wife was, it was showing fashion and jewelry and then other types of books that she happened to be interested in. And, and you know, I look at that and I say, Boy, you're able to – Amazon takes their data and they are able to tailor it very much to Doug and then separately to Doug's wife. And it serves both of them very, very, very well. And so it is taking that data. There was, there was no instinct involved in that. It was all algorithm. So here's where the instinct comes in. Okay. So I recently purchased a grown-up turntable because now vinyl is the thing and all that, right? So I'm seeing a lot of advertisements now because I did a lot of research online. So I'm seeing a lot of advertisements for higher-end turntables. But here's where data gets stupid. I already bought the turntable. The next time I will buy a turntable will probably be in 25 years. Maybe. So is it worth... So where's the efficiency there? Is it worth telling me more about that? What about the other components? Maybe I'm looking for speakers. I already have speakers. What if I'm not interested in that? See, I keep moving on. We all keep moving on. So the data is good as a snapshot and the history, but then you have to intuit. So what happens next? Okay, and so, that's where it So, Howard, from. you told me about the stupidity of now, not the instinct of now. What was, what's the instinct? So I drive this car. It's a recent purchase. I'm in this situation career-wise. I'm at this age. So all that information is abundantly available, right? Um, so what are the likely paths I'm going to follow in the next year or two or three? And you can do that in a very coarse way, but what becomes very interesting is if you follow carefully follow my internet uh, page history, you can begin to see the early stages of what I don't know yet about myself, but it will gradually coalesce. That's what makes this fascinating. Right. And we're not smart enough yet, but with machine learning, we're going to get there. I, I think we will get there. I, I, one of the things I've heard people complain about of uh, the over-analysis uh, is it takes away sort of that discovery part by customers, that they're so channeling everything that I've done and everything that I've looked for that satisfy, you know, sort of that, that itch that I had. But you don't get to explore it. Wow, I never would have thought about looking for this other aspect. And therefore, you know, that never comes up because everything's so targeted towards us. And so there is some of that that's, that's going on for sure. Old days, college radio. I want to turn you on to this album. I want you like this. Maybe you'll like that. Now, we invented a recommendation engine at CD Now, but... <laughs> Looking at a, an algorithm versus looking at you and me talking about music for an afternoon, I guarantee you I'll be better at it than any algorithm will be. Yeah. Right? Because I can look at you in the eyes and I can get a sense of, oh, he didn't really like that. Maybe he'll like this. Data doesn't have that ability. Robots don't have that ability. Machine learning begins to have that ability. We're getting there. But I really like sitting here with you. No. I, really, I really enjoy just the back and forth, and I wonder at what point that becomes an algorithm, too. But there is a limit as to how, how many people we could sit in front of and look in their eyes, yes. which, is, which is part of why we end up having to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So CD Now, um, iTunes destroyed it, or No, CDs destroyed it. You know, one of the things that I find interesting about the opportunities that I've had is many of them are temporary in that it was a very good idea at the moment when CDs were a very good idea. But even at the time we were selling lots and lots and lots of CDs, we all understood the digital download business or the streaming business would take it over. So you'd do the best you can with the cards you dealt at that moment, but 
if you're in a dynamic industry, and I've been in nothing but dynamic industries my whole life, you have to keep a sense, you have to pay attention to what might be coming down the road and stay very, very closely aligned with that because the likelihood that nobody will even remember the name of the company you're working for is so high and happens repeatedly. So Carmen Sandiego, which we were playing with earlier, uh, that television program ended in 1995. And under normal old circumstances, it would have been forgotten. Now, because we have internet and because people insist upon playing theme songs on the radio, right, on the radio right, we got you. it lives, right? But the Beatles music lives. You know, We're in an era where you don't really allow properties to go away. Every song that's ever been recorded is now available. So what does that mean? Do things ever get old? Do we do do is the old lifespan of something meaningful in some way? Yeah, uh, all of the all of this changes the media business in profound ways. Some some of the challenges that we've got. Let me remind people: you're listening to Measure Thoughts with Dave Reepson on Sirius XM one eleven Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. You can give us a call at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And we're talking with Howard Blumenthal who is the Renaissance man and has done some of, of everything, um, you said something that I think is really fascinating, which is you talked about you got you were in a business at CD Now that sold CDs. In fact, your name was somewhat confining because it was CD Now. And one of the questions that lots of businesses have to say is, how do we transform ourselves as the technology underneath us changes? So the classic example is Kodak that was dependent on selling cameras and chemical-based film. And they could have transformed themselves. They should have been the digital camera. They should have been the Kodak inside on every cell phone, uh, smartphone that we've got. They didn't do that. They kept holding on to what they were. And I guess one of the questions is, how does an industry, how does a company within an industry know to make that transition? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I do a lot of work in public television. Right? Right. So, so there's a, you know, at one point, PBS and Sesame Street were the center of sort of the intelligent part of television, right? But that's changed because of Netflix and HBO, and does HBO have better documentaries than PBS and all that other intrigue? Um, PBS has to watch very carefully because a lot of what it does is now done very effectively with an international with an international stage. PBS tends to be a very North American or, or U.S. based idea. You start seeing signs of where the industry is shifting, and if you don't begin to move in those directions and redefine your business, very quickly your business isn't there anymore. Um, so, it, and now it happens with a. Astonishing speed, so and tremendous velocity. So you may be operating a string of photo finishing labs um, because you're Fujifilm or whatever, and then all of a sudden nobody's using that medium anymore. So, so what's the future for PBS? Let's get specific about PDF, uh, PBS. And and given that the documentaries are being produced now on other networks and PBS, I think the the overall future for PBS, and there's a, there's a, uh, a real push-pull here. PBS benefits, and the American people greatly benefit from 170 local public television outlets. Just as on NPR, there are probably over 1,000. So having a local presence, often the only locally owned media company in the city or in the metropolitan area or in the state. So that's all great if they use it and if we as a people fund it. But we've demonstrated that we don't really want to fund it. We're willing through tax money to fund well, about 15% a, there's a question, of it. The question right? about that is, so, okay, the only local... Why do I care? I'm a, I, and I live in Philadelphia. Why should I care that there's a local television station? I'm not sure that I have a good answer for that, and that's one of the problems. So it would be great if we all believed that local is what it's all about, but we're sitting here on the radio, on a national service. And one of the reasons that people pay this money instead of paying, oh, the, you know, please give us money when, when NPR stations beg for money, is because this may provide a better value. How many radio stations are there on C Sirius XM? And you can receive it anywhere, and you don't have the problems you do with FM radio. So the technology is a little better. Um, but where does PBS go? The answer always is you got to have strong programming if you're in the media business. So when Downton Abbey was happening, 
great stuff, right? Right. When Ken Burns has a Vietnam or similar great stuff. Great stuff. But when they don't, then it ends up being a much tougher go. It ends up being a tough go for the stations who are still operating 170 broadcast transmitters, even though most of the viewers are watching it by cable. Right. So the transmitter is going to cable, and then we watch what the transmitter puts out. It's not a great model. It's a model that's very outdated. It needs to be changed, but we don't want to give up that sense of the local because we we have a sense that that's important. And because all of this is nonprofit organizations or government organizations that own these licenses, they're reluctant to change. Reluctance to change in a systematic way, boy, that's a tough one. So they survive, but it's but it, it will be a struggle. It will continue to be a struggle. So what do you see as the forecast? Uh, build for, hits. Build hits? Build hits. The best thing in the world. What, you mean compete with Netflix and I, Amazon no. and, and Apple? And So if there was another Carmen Sandiego, and I'm not saying necessarily that program, but if there was Sesame Street and Carmen Sandiego and Electric Company, whatever the right programs are, and there were a lot of them, and the American people were willing to pay the price for that programming – which is a lot more than we pay for Netflix, right. then PBS would have a tremendous opportunity, not only in the United States, but abroad. If they don't go in that direction, well, then Netflix spends more and more money on scripted dramas and, and all that. And as they do, the audience for PBS becomes a little smaller and a little smaller every year. They become a little less important. And unless they change strategies, I don't think the prognosis is wonderful long term. But it's a very interesting brand, and there's a lot of loyalty to it. So you can't so, – so instinct plays a role in there, not Pe- just the people stats, People contribute right? to it in part because it's a public service, and one sort of thinks that, that it, there's got to be some value in it, and it's not tied to some profit-making aspect. And I think that's part of it. Let me shift gears for a second. Um, you've written 25 books. About, yeah. About 25 books. What's your favorite? Oh, easily. Uh, the Complete Time Traveler, which was by far the worst seller. <laughs> but we, uh, we had the fanciful notion of if we, if we could use time travel as a means to explain science and history in a way that's fun, we could invent some time machines and play around with Einstein's theories and the like. So we did it partially as a comic and partially as a science book and came up with some crazy theories and then told everybody which dinosaurs were safe to feed and if they wanted a ham sandwich in ancient Rome, where the best street corner would be. All of it based upon meticulous research. We had the most fun. It was three people doing it. We all wrote together. We worked from 8 a.m. to midnight in my house. My son was a year old, just out of the hospital. We're all just crazy in the, wor- in the fantasy world of time travel. By far the most fun in writing a book I've ever had. How in the world would you ever do research to find out where is the best place to buy a ham sandwich in ancient Rome. You got to ask my friend Dorothy. Dorothy did that research and would leave the she's in western Pennsylvania. She would grab every book she could about Roman plumbing and the librarians were like what could you possibly be doing? And the answer was well I'm writing a book about time travel. And sure enough, that you know, one topic after another, she's about the most clever researcher I have ever encountered. And we've known each other for decades. Wow. So I will say, uh, and I could continue talking with Howard for hours, and we've got limited time. I will say when he walked in here, he handed me one of his books that is called Branded for Life. And I thought, well, great, because I talk about brands all the time. The subtitle on it is How Americans Are Brainwashed by the Brands We Love. So there's something in there that's saying it, it's – Branding is, is a little bit working against us. Well, when we brand Martin Luther King Jr. or we brand Christopher Columbus and limit everybody's knowledge to just a few sentences, that's very scary. And when you start looking – and there wasn't a lot, of, a lot of attention being paid then, now more so uh, – the reports about what Columbus actually did and where he did it, which of course had nothing whatsoever to do with the United St- what becomes the United States of America. It's a really interesting story about how we brainwash ourselves and love the process. Wow. Um, so it is dangerous because we limit the amount of information. We could spend a lot more time talking about that. We're going to have to do it on another time when I have you back here. Thanks so much for joining me today, Uh, Howard. I really do appreciate it. Everyone else, please do stay with us. We're going to need to take a break. When we get back, we'll take your calls on anything marketing, branding, and metrics related in the last 15 to 20 minutes of the program. 
If you want to join the conversation, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or send us an email at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. This is Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on SiriusXM 111. You're listening to Measured Thoughts on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Here again is David Reebstein. Welcome back. This is Measured Thoughts with Dave Reebstein. I'm Dave Reebstein, and you're listening to Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. I am taking your calls on anything marketing, branding, and metrics related in the last uh, segment of this program, so please do feel free to... Uh, to call in, let me remind you what that number is, which is 1-844-942-7866 or 1-844-WHARTON, W-H-A-R-T-O-N. And welcome any of you calling in. And what I will tell you is I had a fascinating conversation in the first half with uh, with Howard, who is uh, here and a visiting scholar and just fascinating some of the things that uh, that he has been dealing with. There's also a few other topics that I'd be glad to get into, but before I do, and and actually I've asked Howard to hang around so he can help answer any questions that happen to come in, and I see we have uh, Rose on the line right now, so let me turn to Rose and see what she's got on mind. Rose, uh, you're calling from Philadelphia. It's rare to get a call from Philadelphia, so that's great. How can I help you? Hi. Hello. Hello. Um, My name is Rose, and we wrote a, a book. It's a trilingual book for children. And I wanted to get some ideas on how to market it. Okay. Um, so that's great, by the way, that you wrote a book and also wrote a book for children. Now I'm so happy that I had Howard stay around because Howard's written books for kids. So what? do you have a publisher, Rose? Yeah, it's already published. We, self, we self-published it. Okay. And are you distributing it through uh, through bookstores at all? Or are you distributing it online? Or are you going through Amazon? What are you doing for distribution? And then I'm going to get to the part yeah. of how you create demand. We have um, it's on it's on Amazon. Okay. But it's um, the people are not very aware of it, so we need to create awareness and and um, people to be aware of it, and also. Um, because I still had a couple more things to do with it, because it's in three la- every book is in three languages, English, French, and that other language, you know, the other 15 languages, um, I, I've been making a CD to go with the book, and the CDs are almost done so the children can hear the language um, spoken, you know, Right. Totally, as they read along. Okay, um, so that's so, so that's interesting. What are you doing to try and create awareness? Uh, right now, I don't have much to do to create okay. awareness. Okay, so I understand that, and I understand the, the, the dilemma with that. So let, let me just ask Howard a question about that. So you wrote books for kids. Yep. And, and what was the secret? For getting see, awareness. Well, uh, well, she's not going to want to hear work with a major publisher makes it easier, but that was a different era. Rose, what's the book about? What are the books about? The book is about a little uh, an adventure in Paris. Nice. And um, it's uh, about lost pets in Paris and how they go about finding it. But the whole point of the book was, and it's a goofy story for children, but the whole point of it was to write every paragraph in English, yeah. French, then in the other paragraph or line um, to be in, say, Japanese, Russian, okay. Hebrew, the, whatever. So this is a radio show, not a, a full meeting, but here are a couple of quick tips. Number one, mm-hmm. you always drive the book's marketing from the content. So if the content right. is introducing kids to a place or a particular subject, you have to think about who else might what, – what else in the universe might be connected to that? Kids going to Paris, okay. um, kids having pets, lost pets, and each of those will have some sort of an audience that's built in. Then you have to figure out how to connect with those audiences on the web, through email, through partnerships. Partnerships are very important. Find others who do things that are similar to what you want to do and make friends with them. So, and, and the other thought that I have, which is, is actually not in conflict at all with what Howard said, but it's a thought that I have, which is find that particular customer 
um, and, and drill deep. And so what I'm thinking about here is go to a school, go to a teacher, and and get a teacher to to understand what the book's about and basically see if she or he will endorse that for uh, their class. And let it start very small and then bloom from there. So if you get a teacher, those teachers know other teachers, and those kids know other kids. And if you can succeed with that, then I think there's some opportunity from that. So, Rose, best of luck with that book. Appreciate you calling in, and thank you very, very much. And uh, as I say, good luck with it. It's never easy to start uh, start a book. So thank you. So, so actually, it's really interesting, Howard. I find a lot of people that do write books, and they're trying to figure out how do I how do I promote it, and I and they they basically have got to find that first set of customers, and it's pretty much what I was trying to talk to her about: find that first set of customers, and then let it spread from there. Don't try and, and you know gain awareness by making everybody in the world aware because you just don't have enough individual resources to do that. Well, if you're going to drive to Chicago. You're going to need two things. You need a car and you need a road. Okay? Authors only worry about, well, how do I write the book? That's only half the formula. If you write the book, you also have to have a sense of how you're going to get it to the people. And just saying, well, it'll be popular because it's a really good book, well, that doesn't really get you where you need to go. And that's some of the dilemma that I'm working with on the new children's project that I'm working on. Which, which is, what's the new children's well, the, So the notion is that Kids around the world ought to know more about one another for world peace, for cultural literacy, for being a complete human being. We're, we've got the first generation now of fully connected kids who really can talk to anybody anywhere in the world at any time. It's remarkable. But we haven't really organized an effort around that, certainly not in public media, but probably not through education either. We do it in a scattered way. So for me, I'm facing both questions. What does the car look like? What, what is the vehicle? What is it that kids ought to know about one another? And, if, and then the second part of that is, and how will they ever find out? So we have to work on parallel paths as we develop this new Kids on Earth project. If we do one without the other, if I figure out how kids will find out about it, if the product's not very good or not very complete, that doesn't get me there. Right. And then the flip is, if I make a very good product, but nobody knows about it, that doesn't help us either. And then very relevant to what you and I were talking about before, how do I know whether I'm succeeding? How do you establish some sort of a threshold for success, and how do you measure against that so that you know you're moving in the right direction? And if you're not, what do you do about it? So that's some of those metrics of things that we should be looking for of, you know, here's what it is that I need in order to be successful and sort of the milestones that I would have to accomplish. I want to go back to a topic that I had talked about at the very beginning of the program of um, sort of the privacy of information. And um, and I mentioned uh, this one gentleman by the name of Doug Sharp who um, he goes and, and his Amazon page is different than his wife's Amazon page. And I think that privacy uh, question is a really interesting one. And when I mentioned it to Howard earlier, he goes, that's creepy. And uh, what I will say is I get in my car in the morning and it says to me, 27 minutes to work. It knows I'm going to work. It knows which route I'm going. And frankly, I find it a little creepy. On the other hand, I find it so useful because if it says, you know, 67 minutes for you to get to work, I go, I think I'm going to go back in and pour myself another cup of coffee and wait till traffic's not so bad. And so um, it ends up having a, a variety of things that are really, really interesting for us. And so, you know, there's this balance between being creepy and being really, really helpful. So Doug has this, when he goes to Amazon, it's stuff that he's really interested in. That's helpful. Um, if it was about cosmetics, women's cosmetics, it would not have been that helpful to him. So I'm a big believer that um, the only people that should receive coupons and ads for baby diapers are people with babies. And people who have are doing it with their full knowledge and with permission. So knowledge and permission, to me, are the most important gating factors in this. 
to have somebody market to me without my fully understanding what I've signed up for. The terms of use agreements, the user agreements, all that stuff is very, very scary because of the amount of words that are in them and because they're so difficult to understand. But beyond that, I want to affirmatively provide permission. Yes, my family is having a baby. Yes, we are interested in seeing baby products. What I don't want somebody doing is tracking my search history or my emails or my telephone conversations. So let me give you a specific. So somebody I know was having real issues with a Windows computer, um, a lot of viruses, all those things, and probably a fair amount of spyware. And then, so he's looking at, let's say, a used, a used Ford. All of a sudden, people, used car dealers start calling him on the phone. So they've gotten his phone number talking about the used Ford that he had been searching for. Now, this is five years ago. This is, no, we're not as sophisticated as we are now. How do they know that? How do they know this man was shopping for that kind of car? And how was that information distributed to individual car dealers in his area without his knowledge and without his permission? So we need a far better structure of public policy and law around this. And then, absolutely, fair game. Everybody ought to market as hard as they can. It's a free enterprise system. But I think that we have not established the rules properly or in a fair and reasonable way. So actually, I'd like to see that changed. So there are rules. There are rules that have been established, rules being defined in this case as laws. And here's what I understand the laws being. And again, I heard a presentation about this on Friday morning, which is the, the law currently states that a company can use its, the data that it has about a customer for itself. And people have the opportunity to opt out. Yes. That, to opt out. That company cannot repurpose that data and give it to another company without having customers opt in. So the ability to take individual data and then provide it to uh, other vendors, it sort of is your information. And it sort of is with the notion that when I go to Amazon – I'm sort of telling them this is what I want, and I've already done that. Amazon cannot take that data then and then sell it to Procter & Gamble or sell it to your turntable company. It is my, at least my understanding of the law right now without you opting into that. But the evidence on my screen suggests that there is a lot more sharing through partnerships, through joint ventures, through ways of, of dealing. But there's a reasonable man test in here too or a reasonable person test. If you don't understand that terms of use and you feel as though the information has gone beyond what you're comfortable with, there is no easy means for you to change that. You, it, the, the world of attorneys surrounding Amazon or any other services, they've made it so complicated and so difficult for the average person to be able to navigate that you just sort of say yes to everything. And that's not satisfactory public policy. And, and, and you are right. You know, I told you what I what my understanding is of the laws right now, and not everybody's abiding by the law, and so we're still going to have a lot of sorting out in this, and I think it's going to be interesting as we see it evolve. Um, another an, another topic for us to talk about, and it's one that I think about uh, quite a bit, which is so when does the Christmas season really begin? You know, uh, I am amazed. We just got done with our, I mean, actually, I haven't moved the pumpkins off of my front step yet. And all of a sudden, I'm seeing Christmas lights going up. And um, I thought that didn't start till after Black Friday. And it, it was it was just a sprint from Black Friday to uh, to Christmas. But the Christmas lights are going up. The Christmas sales are starting to come in. I got a catalog that was talking about all the, the holiday specials that are happening. And I guess one of the questions is, how far does a company want to reach out to start promoting their holiday sales? And it's, it's a real interesting question in my mind as to what makes sense. Let me tell you some of my thoughts about that. It, de it depends on the product that we're selling. Some products take a while for people to really think about. Um, for example, uh, every year, as I've talked about previously on this program, I host a Super Bowl party at my house. 
And I have it for all of the members of the marketing faculty that come to the house. And as I've said before, we spend much more time paying attention to the commercials than we do to the game. I'm thinking about, eh, I should get a nicer TV for the party. But that's a process that I don't want to just walk in and spontaneously buy. So I need to start searching that now. That takes a lot longer than if I'm thinking about, you know, the box of candy that I might get for somebody. So it's an interesting thought about um, when that season really should begin probably differs uh, by what our product category is. And Howard, any thoughts on that? Well, when, when it was a mail order, call this 800 number. Typically, the end of September, the beginning of October would be about right. To, for products that require that were not impulse items or were preloads, early loads, people who wanted to get their Christmas shopping finished before Columbus Day, as my wife used to do. But that changes when you can price compare on the Internet any time of the year. So I think Halloween or Christmas or, or any of the retail holidays really are primarily a bricks and mortar and now a front lawn kind of a phenomenon, right? But the question is, what is the internet version of that? If we're on, a, if we're in a digital society and we're not filling store windows, but instead we're trying to affect behavior, I'm looking for for what I want when I want it, and the internet provides me the opportunity to research, talk to other customers, look at individual brands, look at attributes, look at all those different things. So much so, more, much more information, but we ha we don't need as much time. We need a shorter time because we're able to do it much more efficiently now. And I don't need a time of year either. And, and so let's get rid of, of the holidays. I think we should have one holiday that goes 365. Uh, well, uh, Maybe 364, we have one day that's not a holiday. And yeah. that's it. Right? Well, that would be the end of Hallmark, and right. so we got to be a little bit careful about that. Interesting stuff um, that, that we've got going on. Uh, and, of course, there's always Cyber Monday for us to think about, too. So that's, an, that's another one for us to do. Um, one or two real quick comments about the project you're working on and just a, a couple bullet points in the next, you know, 45 seconds that you could sort of highlight the project just to tease our listeners. Sure. Uh, and we'll be releasing information about this uh, with, shortly. But the idea is if a kid in Kampala, Uganda, I was just there, has a clearer picture of the life of a child in Moscow and maybe in Michigan, that probably leads us to a much more positive place in this era of trying to understand what a nation is and what our role is and, and all that, regardless of who's leading which nation. I'm hoping that the next generation of kids will have a much clearer picture of what the world looks like, and I'm hoping that we, collectively as the adults, We'll create a place where that will be an easy and really pleasant thing to do. I'm hoping that's going to be the case. You know, it. I, and I've had that aspiration for a long time, and it hasn't. And you have too, Howard. And it hasn't progressed as quickly as we would have thought. So, inter interesting for us. But uh, it sounds like you're trying to do something for it. So I, th I think that's great. Um, interesting program. Very nice to have Howard with us uh, today. And I hope you all enjoyed it. I uh, would certainly like to thank all of our listeners that are here. Thank Howard, indeed, for being here. So thank you, Howard. Thank you. And for our callers that we have, would also like to thank Program Director Patty Hall, Producer Matthew Datz, Sound Engineer Tatiana Zamas. Glad to see you back here, Tatiana. This has been Measure Thoughts with Dave Reepstein on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by the Warden School.